0: Well, Isaiah 55 starts with an exclamation of sorts. If I wanted to get your attention, I might shout, Hey! Or Yo! Well, Isaiah does something similarly. He cries out, Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is what Jesus cried out in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, that great day of the feast. When the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, fill his vases with water, then walk back up to the temple, and there before the host of Israel, he would pour it out, pour out the water on the altar. It was at that very moment that Jesus drew everyone's attention to himself, to the living water, the spiritual, soul-satisfying water. He said basically what Isaiah says here, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You know, someone noted that in John chapter 7, that particular day, it was the day that Jesus shouted. You remember back in Isaiah 42, it was said of the Messiah, He will not cry out, nor raise His voice, nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. In other words, Jesus wasn't a loud mouth. He didn't walk through the streets shouting and yelling and screaming. He spoke deliberately, calmly, with certainty. He impressed people with the truth that He spoke, not His volume. But you see, this day was the exception. This was the day that Jesus shouted. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, we're told, Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a promise. You know, one of the best Pepsi ads of all time is the delivery mix-up, where Pepsi gets delivered to the senior citizen's home while the rival brand ends up being delivered to the frat house. And then suddenly the seniors are all seen energetic and dancing and playing and partying while the college kids are all playing shuffleboard. Well, substitute the living water for the living water of Jesus for Pepsi and the pleasures of this world for the rival brand. And it teaches us the truth. His joy revives and refreshes. Whereas the stuff of this world, it drags us down. It ends up a bore. And the living water is free. Notice Isaiah says, And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What a deal. You know, the best drink on the market is absolutely free. That's because it's been paid for by another On the cross, Jesus uttered, Te telestai, or it is finished. It was an accounting term that meant paid in full. The fulfillment Jesus offers us can't be bought. It can only be received. You have to come. All that costs you is whatever it is you have to step over to come to Him. And then He says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages? for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And here is a great question. Why do you spend money for what does not satisfy? In the end, that other brand has a steep price, but for what? Nothing eternal. No ultimate fulfillment is gained. You know, there's an Aesop's fable where a wolf wants to eat a dove. But the dove always keeps its distance, stays away from the wolf, until one day the wolf finds a supply of the dove's favorite worms to eat. And every day he offers one of these worms for one of its feathers. Seems like a good idea to the dove, he has plenty of feathers, but over time it proves fatal, for the dove gives up so many feathers that there comes a point where he can no longer fly, and thus the wolf eats the dove for lunch. And this is what can happen to a believer. If we swap time with Jesus, spiritual joys for worldly pleasures, if we give up those feathers that allow us to fly, and we lose that ability, our hearts become grounded in this world, and we end up food for the enemy. You know, the Bible closes with this invitation in Revelation 22, verse 17, "...let him who thirsts come." And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Come and drink deeply of the spiritual water of Jesus Christ. It is free. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to Me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And He calls it the sure mercies of David. You know, one man holds the exclusive bottling rights to the living water. That's why it's called the sure mercies of David. And who of David's family tree prevailed to lay claim to this promise? It was the Messiah. This is why Jesus was called the Son of David. And this is why Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the only distributor of God's living water. Isaiah continues to speak prophetically of Jesus in verse 4. Indeed, I have given Him as a witness to the people a leader and commander for the people. I love that. Jesus Christ is our leader and commander. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who, you do, who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And isn't this what's happened? The Gentiles, who were ignorant of God's promises to David, have come now and followed Jesus. God will glorify His Son in the eyes of all nations, Isaiah tells us. Then He says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Understand that today, right now, God is available to us. He offers us mercy, a full forgiveness, but that won't always be true. The time will come when God will withdraw his offer. You see, time is of the essence. Seek the Lord while he may be found. For my ways, or for my thoughts, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is such an important strategic verse. Theology is the study of God. And when we study God, one of the first things that we realize is that He is infinite. He is all everything, almighty, all holy, etc., And this creates an immediate difficulty for the theologian. Theology is the finite in pursuit of the infinite. And even though God's Word, His revelation to us, is infallible, there's still much of God that eludes us. This is why the smart theologian is quick to recognize his limitations. You see, there's no way for my little pea brain to discover all there is to know about an infinite God. I get confused trying to put a swing set together. I mean, who am I to presume that I have the ability to fully know God? Once there was a child in Sunday school. He told the teacher that he was drawing a picture of God. Well, the teacher corrected him. He said, son, no one knows what God looks like. The little boy answered proudly, they will when I get through. And this is the problem with many a prideful theologian. They've forgotten their limitations. Isaiah reminds us, My ways are not His ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. God has His own logic. God is on a different plane. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God's wisdom is so opposite of ours that to us at times it even looks as if it's foolishness. That God designs His ways to humble us. He refuses to let us fully figure out all there is to know about Him. You see, in order to know God, we have to be willing to trust Him, even where we can't trace Him. It's like the atheist who bumped into the pastor at the restaurant one night. He asked the pastor, he says, You know, I suppose you believe that Bible. The pastor answered, Well, yes, of course I do. The Bible is God's Word. Well, the atheist shot back. He said, But aren't there things in the Bible you can't explain? The pastor said, Well, sure, there are plenty of things in the Bible too difficult for me to understand. Well, the atheist thought he had him trapped He said, well, what do you do with those difficult parts? Well, the pastor looked down at his plate and he poked his fork into the fish that he was eating. And he said, well, you know, I treat the Bible like I do this fish. The difficulties are the bones. And when I come to one of the bones, I set it to the side of my plate and keep eating the delicious fish. I leave the bones for some fool to choke on. Mark Twain once said it this way. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And obviously, don't always obey. I love the old saying, what's over my head is still under God's feet. And this is what we need to remember. That just because I can't figure it out doesn't mean that it has surprised or baffled God. And then verse 10 tells us, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and, bring, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Well, God's Word, it's like the rain that waters the earth. It makes the plants grow and produces fruit. Nothing is as life-changing as God's Word spoken at a fitting time. You see, the Bible is like a caged lion. You don't need to defend it as much as you need to just let it out of its cage. It can defend itself. Turn it loose and watch it work. What the Bible goes forth to accomplish, it it always succeeds. It never returns void. You can be sure that the Word of God will accomplish its mission. He says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Of course, trees have no hands. They definitely don't clap. Isaiah here is speaking poetically. He's speaking figuratively. You know, Romans 8 teaches us that today creation remains under the curse curse of man's sin it groans awaiting God's redemption every time you hear the trees creak and uh, the wind blow through and rustle the leaves it's creation groaning longing for the day when Jesus will return and establish his everlasting kingdom when that day comes here Isaiah tells us the creation will sing in praise The trees of the field will clap their hands and rejoice in the new creation that God will bring to this earth. He says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And this looks, of course, to the kingdom age when Jesus will return. When He'll reign over planet earth. When man sinned in the garden, the earth was cursed with thorns and thistles. But in that day, those thorns and thistles will be replaced by the cypress and myrtle tree, the beautiful trees, and all of creation will blossom in God's goodness. Chapter 56, thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed." One day soon, God's righteousness will be revealed. It will prevail. In the meantime, He tells us to do justly. He says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. In other words, don't give ear or pity a person who talks about all that they've given up to serve the Lord. You've run across people like that? They're always talking about what they've sacrificed to serve God. You know, I've discovered that I can't really sacrifice anything to serve God. He gives me, anytime I make a sacrifice to God, He gives me so much in return. It's not like a sacrifice. He's so good to me. He's so gracious to me. How can we outgive God? For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, God is no man's debtor. He more than compensates those who serve him and those who make sacrifices in his name. Never forget, you can never Outgive God. Verse 6, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Just because God chose Israel to receive his covenants doesn't mean that he doesn't have plans for the Gentiles. Here He promises them inclusion. Those who love Him and serve Him will find a place in God's house. He says, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Jerusalem temple was the very center of Judaism, but God had always intended for it to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel. You see, this is the verse that Jesus quoted when he drove the money changers out of the temple. The Jewish temple, it wasn't a flea market or bazaar. It wasn't a place for business. It was a place for holiness and sacrifice and communication with God. And it was for all nations, not just the Jews. Usually on our first night when we visit Jerusalem, I always take a group down to the Wailing Wall. Of course, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, is the last standing portion of the first century temple. It's actually a retaining wall. But because of its proximity to the holiest site it—the uh, holiest site in Jerusalem, which was where the uh, Ark of the Covenant sat, the Jews revere it. They treat it as special. It's where they come to pray. And it is especially beautiful at night. That's why I like to go there. My first time at the Wailing Wall... I'll never forget walking up to the ancient stones. and I stood next to two Orthodox Jews. And it was a strange feeling. I really wasn't sure that I belonged there. You know what I mean? A redneck from Georgia standing there next to a couple of Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall. I mean, am I supposed to be here? That's when the Holy Spirit brought this verse to my mind. The temple is for all nations. It's a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel. In fact, scripturally, I had every much a right to be there as those two Jews standing next to me. God had brought this foreigner to His holy mountain. And then verse 8, The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to Him others besides those who are gathered to Him. God's plan not only was to regather the Jews, but it was to gather the Gentiles to God as well. You remember Jesus Uh, said the same thing in John chapter 10, verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of the fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And of course, he was thinking of us, the church. Verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Now here Isaiah is speaking of the royal counselors, the king's watchdog, so to speak. It was their job to warn the king of danger, but now they're silent. And Isaiah's asking, are they blind? Are they dumb? Are, are they ignorant people? Are they just asleep? He says, yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain from his own territory. No, the reason for their silence wasn't stupidity or ignorance or lethargy. They were greedy dogs. All they cared about was their own prophet, not the Lord, not the king, not the nation. He says, come, one says, I will bring wine And we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. You see, the nation of Judah had disobeyed God and was under divine judgment at the time. But the king and his counselors had interpreted the bad times as a cyclical downturn. Their solution was to get drunk today and things will be better tomorrow. And doesn't that sum up America today? Isn't that how we're looking at things, as as just a cyclical downturn? Things will turn, things will change, things will get better. And so we just go off and numb ourselves and hope that things will be better tomorrow. We've banned Christianity from our public schools, our public institutions. We've murdered 55 million unborn babies. And we're about to legitimize the perversion and legalize the perversion of God's holy matrimony. Think of what America's done. Is it possible that our economic woes aren't just cyclical, but they are the beginnings of God's judgment? Is it possible? Revelation 13 foresees a global economy in the last days. Well, for that to occur, the U.S. economy has to fail. Though financial times in the future may not just be business as usual. I think that's the point here. That's why we need to sober up before it's too late. Chapter 57 begins with an interesting, I think a rather provocative verse. The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Now notice this. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. Notice the righteous, the merciful here, are taken out and spared God's judgment. Sounds a lot like the rapture, doesn't it? We may have to endure tougher times, but before the toughest times arrive, what the Bible calls great tribulation, the righteous will be taken away. We'll avoid the evil, Isaiah says. It's an interesting promise. And then verse 2. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Isn't it interesting that even in ancient times, a person who stuck out their tongue was guilty of defiance? You know, you know it was a way of uh, a, a kind of a sign of rebellion. Yeah, I'm just going to stick out my tongue and do it my way. Here Isaiah is speaking of the spiritual adulterers and harlots, people who have forsaken the true God for idols. He says, Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? Inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree? The idols that they were worshipping on the pagan high places, they were numerous. It was as if they were worshipping a different god under every green tree. He describes their activities. Slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. This refers to the child sacrifices offered to the false god of Molech. This was practiced in ancient times. This was a temptation to Israel from time to time. What was practiced in the valleys outside the walls of Jerusalem, particularly the western valley of Hinnom, this was an abomination in the eyes of God. Children were burned alive in the molten arms of Molech. They had drummers that would play very loud to drown out the cries of the child as they literally were torched in the molten arms. The hollowed-out statue was stuck with fire and became an inferno for the babies. And don't think, how could these people allow such atrocities? When we've legalized abortion mills all over our land, the same thing is being done today. You could say, under every green tree. He says, Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. The pagans of old, like New Agers today, they assigned supernatural powers to gems and crystals and smooth stones. The Hebrews offered the sacrifices that God had commanded for Himself to these smooth stones. They were worshiping inanimate objects. This was foolishness in the eyes of God." He says, "...even to them you have poured a drink offering, you have offered a grain offering." These were offerings that should have been going to God. Instead, they were being offered to stones and crystals and gems. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. Throughout Scripture, sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry go together. Ancient idolaters, they worshiped fertility gods, and they did so with lewd practices and Isaiah's here saying that Israel has gone to bed with idols. That God's people have been intimate, both spiritually and sexually, with other lovers. They have proved unfaithful to the one true God. Often when I officiate a wedding, I'll turn to the bride and I'll say, Now, no one expects you to be perfect. We all know better. But we do expect you to be faithful. And then I'll turn to the groom and I'll say, No one expects you to be perfect. We all know better, but we all do expect you to be faithful. See, I can make mistakes and still be loyal to my spouse. Sometimes I take her for granted. Sometimes I slip up and do things that I didn't mean, but I can still be faithful. I can still be loyal. I don't have to be perfect, but I can be loyal. And this is true in our relationship with God. We're called by God to give Him our whole heart to not share our hearts with another. No one expects you to be faithful, but God does expect you to be loyal, to be faithful. Verse 9, You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. In other words, even to hell. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say, there is no hope. In other words, their evil ways had become burdensome to them. You know, at at times, as times rolled on, sin wearied them, you could say. And yet they never repented. They held out hope for better days. How many people do you know are in that situation tonight? You know, they've been weighed down by their sin. Their sin has created a trap and a snare for them. And yet, why not repent? Don't you know? The power of God is at your disposal. Don't you know you can you can find freedom by just calling on the name of Jesus? Why don't you do that tonight? Well, they, they're hoping for better days. They, they love their sin too much. They don't want to give it away. He says, You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? They obviously had feared and revered other gods and not the God of Israel. He says, Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. You see, it was because God had held his peace. It was because of God's patience that they took him for granted. Because he had been silent and that he had not judged them, they figured that he couldn't judge them. What a tragic miscalculation. Just because God isn't acting doesn't mean that He can't and that He won't. Instead of repenting and turning to God, they pointed to their own good works. They were self-righteousness. It reminds me of the old saying, Good works will keep you out of jail, but they won't keep you out of hell. In the end, Israel's good works did neither. And then verse 13, he says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Well, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good statement. If you want to follow these idols, let them help you when you get into trouble. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. A strong wind would blow their idols away. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. Prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. You know, heap it up means to elevate a road. In other words, build a highway where God's people can return to his temple. He says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Notice this, how ironic. God is the highest. There is no one higher. He is the high and lofty one. But with whom does he dwell? The lowest. The highest dwells with the lowest. He fellowships with the humble and with the repentant and the contrite, those that are sorry for their sin. God doesn't, the high and lofty one doesn't dwell with the high and mighty. It's not the proud folks with whom he hangs out and fellowships. Those who insist that they're always right. No. God is always gravitating toward the lowest, to the humblest, to the contrite heart. James 4, verse 6 reads: God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of His covetousness, I was angry and struck Him. I hid and was angry, and He went on backsliding in the way of His heart. God is speaking here of the people of Israel. I have seen His ways and will heal Him. I will also lead Him and restore comforts to Him and to His mourners. Yes, God was angry with Israel. But he had not forsaken, the nation. He will bring healing. He will lead them again. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. You know, when you read that peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, sounds a lot like Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul goes into this Discourse of how those that have far, who were far off, the Gentiles, had been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles have been made one. Here is a foreshadowing of that, of that promise fulfilled. He says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What a vivid uh, picture. The wicked are like the troubled sea, just churning always, rest, restless, no peace, no calm. Isaiah 58 he says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Understand, the good news always begins with the bad news. Salvation is possible only after we come to grips with and repent of our sin. And thus God says, tell my people their transgression. Don't sugarcoat it. Be honest about what they've done. Folks need to know. How can we repent of our sin if we're not willing to admit our sin, if we don't recognize our sin. Most people are not willing to admit their sin or even recognize their sin. That's why they need to be told that they've sinned. And yet I've heard pastors say, well, you know, people today, they know they've missed the mark. We don't need to talk about sin all the time. Well God through Isaiah says the opposite. People don't like to admit their sins. They don't even want to recognize their sin. Usually people are trying to justify their sin or maybe rename their sin or water it down or sweep it under the carpet. That's why they need to be told and confronted about their sin. Tell my people their transgression. One author writes, people are no longer sinful. They are only immature or underprivileged or frightened or more particularly sick. Or so they like to believe. Realize we like a sickness because a sickness is not my fault. You know, it's something that I catch. I'm the innocent victim rather than the guilty party. You know, today it seems that everything is a sickness. Did you know there are now 140 different self-help groups in the United States? These groups claim 45 million members There's Sex Addicts Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Spenders Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, Workaholics Anonymous, Shoplifters Anonymous. There's even now a Messies Anonymous. At a Messies meeting, sloppiness isn't dealt with as a character flaw, but as a disease. And you understand what happens when you treat it this way you can separate the person from the problem so that it removes any personal responsibility. You know, it it seems to be a cop-out to call laziness a sickness. I mean, don't you think maybe laziness is a defect in your character? It's a sin that you need to correct. Now, there are... Issues like alcoholism, like drug addiction, that do involve a legitimate chemical dependency. I certainly admit that. And a person uh, who drinks excessively, oftentimes they get into a place where they, it's uncontrollable. It's a, it's a binge kind of a thing. But that person still bears a responsibility for his or her actions. The illness is the uncontrollable drinking that follows that first drink. But trust me, the sin is that first drink. If you know you're an alcoholic, then it becomes a sin to take the first drink. You might not be able to control it afterwards, but you can control it up to that first drink. This is why alcoholism is both a sickness and a sin. The illness is the uncontrollable drinking that follows the first drink, but the sin is the first drink. He says, tell my people transgression. Until we admit our sin, how can we receive God's forgiveness and God's help? And then verse 2 he tells us, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. In other words, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, these Jews were going through the motions. They liked to present themselves to God. They took delight in approaching God. But were they doing any good? Were they really getting closer to God? Were they really trying to do those things that truly please God? They appeared to be seeking God. He says, but why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. In other words, the Jews were wondering why their fasting, why their great service to God wasn't being seen, why they weren't being rewarded and praised for what they were doing for God. He says, Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. You see, the problem was that their fasting was a farce, they were hypocrites. They fasted to win arguments and to boast in their religious zeal, but their fasting wasn't sincere. You see, sincere fasting is to restrain from a daily activity in order to pursue a spiritual goal. I I like how fasting is is, uh, defined. It's to do without food in order to fatten the soul. This is the heart of real fasting. The time I spend preparing and eating a meal is invested in prayer and deepening my walk with the Lord. Fasting forces me to tune out the world, to subdue my flesh, to acknowledge my weaknesses. Charles Swindoll defines it, Fasting gives time to let the silt of our lives drop to the bottom. I like that. It settles our soul. It quiets us and prepares our hearts for God to speak to us. But there is a way to fast fast foolishly and fast in a phony way you remember jesus said of the pharisees in matthew chapter 6 they disfigured their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting in other words you can fast in such a way or you can do any kind of religious deed in such a way to where it becomes an outward show it's demonstrative but it doesn't touch our heart here we learn from isaiah that this wasn't anything new what the pharisees in jesus's day were doing They were simply following in the footsteps of earlier hypocrites. Verse 5, Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Again, it was not the outward performance that God desired or the body posture that came with it, the bowed head like a bulrush leaning over in the wind or dressing in sackcloth and ashes. This wasn't what God desired. You know, in the Old Testament, God only required one day of fasting. On Yom Kippur, or on the Day of Atonement, the nation was to fast. Other than that one occasion, all fasting was voluntary. Again, fasting fattens the soul. It was always a means to an end, never an end in itself. God doesn't care about sacrifice for sacrifice's sake or outward rituals and rites. His priority is the attitude of our hearts. It's been said, he who fasts but does no other good saves his bread but loses his soul. And that's what was happening in Isaiah's day. Fasting should never be a substitute for true and sincere following and obedience to God. And then God says in verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? If you want to please me, if you want to fast in such a way that pleases me, if you want a good fast, do this. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is this not the fast I desire? To really please God, it takes more than just ritualistic service. He gets excited about liberation, freeing people from what enslaves them. This is what pleases God. Christianity is not about confinement and restriction. It's about the freedom from sin that holds people down. God wants us all to truly be all that He meant for us to be. And then verse 7, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. What thrills the heart of God are acts of charity that actually change the plight of people in need. Feeding and clothing and sheltering the poor excites the Lord. And you know, Christianity, it sweetens the pot when it comes to charitable acts. For Jesus adds for us an extra incentive. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 25? Inasmuch as you do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That should make us all more eager to help the poor and needy. For when we help them, it's as if we're caring for Christ Himself. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, By this we know love, because He, that is Jesus, laid down His life for us. And we also Ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And this is what Isaiah is trying to communicate to the Jews of his day. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. In other words, the healing and help, from God that they had hoped to gain from fasting, they can obtain by obeying God and showing mercy to others. I love what he says here. His glory shall be your rear guard. What an interesting idea that stirs up. The glory of the Lord, our rear guard. He watches our back. Verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your soul in drought, and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Look at all that God promises us if we reach out to the hungry and to the afflicted. He promises us guidance, fulfillment, strength, refreshment, fruitfulness. I mean, what more do we want? Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Now, breach means gap, and street means path. Sin has caused a breach between man and God, as well as man and his fellow man. The path to God has been lost. Today, the road is overgrown, and it's unmarked. But here, Isaiah refers to God, and more specifically, His Messiah. Jesus is the repairer of the breach. And the restorer of streets. In other words, Jesus cuts a new path. In fact, Jesus is the path. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to God. Jesus is the bridge builder. Jesus is the one who connects man with God and man with his fellow man. He is the repairer of the breach. And of course, these names are not just indicative of Jesus' spiritual mission, though they are. But in the kingdom age, our Lord Jesus will literally fulfill these truths. He'll don a hard hat. He'll rebuild the old waste places. And He'll raise up the foundations. He'll give the holy city of Jerusalem a facelift. And then we're told, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy holy day, And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor Him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Now, throughout tonight's study, again and again, God has mentioned the people's respect or disrespect for the Sabbath day. Obviously, we are no longer under the Sabbath laws. For a Christian, every day is a holy day that should be used to glorify God. In a sense, there's nothing more special about Saturday than there is about Monday or Tuesday if you're a believer in Jesus. We're to be no respecter of a day, but we're to treat every day as an opportunity to serve and to glorify God. Every day is the Lord's day. But having said that, there is a principle behind The law that does apply to us. For the law of Moses was given to us for our learning, and we are foolish to ignore something that was so important to God for thousands of years. The Sabbath day does teach us an important lesson that we should take heed to. In other words, there is a rhythm to our lives. You know, we cycle between work and family and leisure. These are all inescapable components of our lives. We move through life in a patterned way. And God wants to make sure that we interject worship into that rhythm. You know, you go to work, you come home, you have family time, you do you your leisure time. The Sabbath was all about interjecting into life's patterns, into our rhythm, a, a component of worship. And this is still important. This is important to you and to me because we live in a world that is so busy and so congested with activities that life tends to crowd out any kind of worship, any kind of reflection or contemplation on God and the things of God. Here God wants there to be one designated day among the six other days of work that we devote to rest and to worship. We need to add worship to the rhythms of our life. This is what the Sabbath was about. And we ignore this to our own peril. Again, we live such stressed out lives. Why? Because we disregard the rhythms of Sabbath. And when we do, our work suffers. Our family suffers. When we let work override our time and leave nothing for worship, we're the ones who lose. You know, this is why... Jesus said in Mark chapter two, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath is not a straitjacket to restrict us. It's a life jacket that will keep us afloat in the stormy sea if we buckle it on. We need to obey the rhythms of Sabbath. It's good for us. It's good for the people around us. And then verse 14. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Carve into your life a Sabbath respect. Make your worship regular and weekly and be committed to it. And you'll benefit. God will cause you to ride on the high hills. Has your life been experiencing too many valleys lately? Would you like to ride on the high hills? Well then, examine your life and see if if you haven't allowed life to crowd out the worship component. Maybe rest and worship need to be integrated back into your rhythms. You'll enjoy your life. You'll be able to breathe deeply. You'll be able to take in the beautiful things that are around you. You can endure life in the valley knowing that you'll be enriched on the high hills. But ignore the Sabbath. Seek only your own pleasure and your own profit and you'll enjoy neither. Your life will just get gobbled up by this world. Work and worship need to be balanced. And God gave us the Sabbath to do just that. Never forget... God is what makes life worth living. And there we have Isaiah chapters 55 to 58.